Hey, thanks so much for joining us on the Summit Church Podcast. We want to connect you to a relationship with God and all that He has in store for you. We hope this inspires you, strengthens your faith, and gives you hope to live out your best days now. Enjoy the message. We're in a series called The Power of Hope, H-O-P-E. We looked at ways to grow hope. We looked last week at killers of hope, what destroys hope in me. And today, we're going to talk about how hope can bring hope to someone in a hopeless situation. And we're going to the book of Ruth. So I want to start by giving you our scripture we've been using for this series in Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I hope God's doing that for you. We've been learning we need hope because we're always concerned about the future, but we also know we can't control the future. How many controllers in here would if you could? (laughs) I would. So we've learned Christian hope is built on the resurrection of Jesus. It's at the core of flourishing human life. And we've learned how to measure our hope levels. I hope you're doing that. And how to take responsibility for our hope to keep hope alive. So what we're going to talk about today is what to do with hope when what you hope for hasn't happened. Louis Schmeeds wrote, there was an old Calvary model that said, when your horse dies, dismount and saddle another one. Well, that's true of hope. Sometimes you can't ride a dead hope any more than you can ride a dead horse. So Lewis says, life is a series of hope adjustments. So what do you do when reality is not what you hoped it would be? You're not going to have kids, or you're not going to get married, or you're not going to have the marriage you wanted, or you're not going to get into that school, or you're not going to have that career. See, when your life doesn't adjust itself to fit your hopes, how do you adjust your hope to fit your life? Well, the Bible has a story about that, and a woman like that. Her name was Naomi. She had a husband, she had two sons, and they lived in Israel. But there was a famine, a recession. So they had to leave their land and immigrate to Moab, where they hoped to live as resident aliens until they could afford to move back home. Well, while they were there, Naomi's husband died. She married her two sons off to two Moabite girls, hoping they would raise families and be able to take care of her. But after 10 years, no grandchildren, then first her older son and then her youngest son, they die as well. I mean, just when you think it can't get worse, it does. A person who's lost their home is called an alien. A woman who lost her husband is called a widow. A child who's lost their parent is called an orphan. But there's no word for a parent who lost a child. Maybe because it seems to violate the natural order of things. You know, parents aren't supposed to bury their kids. And some of you know that pain. Well, all of this happens in just the first five verses of the book. And this widow, Naomi, decides she's going to go back to Israel. Well, she has no heir. That means the family she and her husband started is now finished. That means in a land-based economy like theirs, their old land that they had and left is gone forever. That means in a patriarchal society like theirs, there's no status for her as a widow. She has no heirs. She's alone. No safety net for her. 
No, uh, no welfare for her. No belongings for her. She has to adjust to the loss of virtually every one of her hopes. Well, she tells in a real striking moment to her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, that they should stay behind, live in Moab, girls, find new husbands, start new families. Well, they cry together with her, and they weep for their dead husbands, and they weep for their childish lives, and they cry for one another. Her two daughters-in-law offer to go with Naomi, but Naomi won't hear of it. Here's what she says. She says, even if I thought there was still hope for me, and she doesn't, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand is turned against me. At this they cried aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Now, if you're following along, you want to circle that word hope in verse 12, because in all of the Bible, that book has influenced how people think about hope more than any other book in world history. This is the first time the word hope occurs in Scripture for old Naomi, and she has none. Why? She said, even if I thought there was still hope for me, which she does not, she says, life is bitter. The Lord's hand is turned against me. So think about that one. So she says, go home to the girls. Go home. Go back to Moab. Well, one of them does. Orpah kisses her goodbye and goes home to Moab to find another husband, start another family, and become a famous celebrity TV talk show host. <laughs> Actually, Oprah was named for Orpha with a slight misspelling. Did you know that? No, you didn't know that. Well, Ruth will not go back, and she says these unforgettable words that are so beautiful, and I'll read them out of the King James Version. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death come between me and you. And I thought, who is this woman? In the Old Testament, Abraham is lifted up as the hero of faith and hope. But Abraham got called by God in a vision. He got the promise of God that he and his old wife would have a child. He got a covenant from God. He could take his spouse with him when he left. He could take his possessions. He could take his servants. He could take his wealth. Well, Ruth has got nothing. Ruth stands alone. Ruth leaves behind her country, her people, her religion. She's barren. She's got no promise from God she would ever have a child or be a mother. And in a patriarchal man-ruled man world that they lived in, this woman, Ruth, commits herself not to find another husband who could bring her hope, but to this old wrinkled lady who has no hope at all. And in her world, Moabites were despised by the Israelites. They were not allowed to join in the assembly or the congregation of Israel. They worshiped the god Chemosh, by sometimes offering human sacrifice. So a despised Moabite is now going to immigrate to Israel. This should be good. 
By the way, don't miss this moment. This is Ruth's conversion. Your God, the God of Israel, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Ten Commandments, will be my God. That's her conversion. And by the way, notice, she does this even though she's never got a calling from God, like Abraham did. Ruth is kind of a fascinating book. There's no divine guidance in it. There's no burning bush. There's no still, small voice like Elijah had. There are no angelic visions. Nobody gets miraculously directed or healed or raised from the dead. Ruth has to make decisions on her own and kind of muddle through life the best she can. Well, maybe your life is kind of like that. You know, this might be a really good book for you to read. It's a very short book. And it's a really good book for ordinary people because the most daring act of hope in all of the Bible and all devotion in the Old Testament is done by this girl, Ruth, a penniless, childless, pagan, uncalled Moabite widow. So go figure what's your problem. When it comes to an act of faith, Ruth leaves Abraham in the dust. As somebody once said of an old movie star named Ginger Rogers, she danced with the renowned, famous Fred Astaire. They said she did everything he did, but backwards in high heels. Well, Ruth did everything Abraham did, but backward in high heels. Two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Orpah responds to her loss by pursuing her old hopes and dreams. Her choice made sense. She's not criticized in the Bible at all. Orpah did what any reasonable person would do. Ruth did what only an unreasonable person would do. We never hear of Orpah again. So her contrast with Ruth in this story is supposed to raise questions to us. And I kind of wonder if maybe life right now is characterized in your life by normal, normal hopes, reasonable desires that aren't bad, but maybe you haven't asked if God has a deeper, costlier, riskier hope for you. Hmm, little danger zone there. Well, Ruth makes this completely unexpected and unreasonable step. And if you were to ask her, Ruth, baby, why would you do this? There's really only one answer. She's betting the farm on love, not romantic love. She has a hope that her circumstances would turn out a certain kind of a way and that the universe would turn out to be a certain kind of place where a costly act done in love wouldn't be wasted. And Naomi can't talk her out of it. So they return together to Israel, to Naomi's old hometown of Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. The text says the whole town's buzzing. They're so excited. It's our girl, Naomi's back after all these years. And they're so excited but Naomi responds, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And by the way, her theology is really screwed up here. God did not do this, okay? Okay. He did not do this. Everything bad in your life that God didn't do. Sometimes we make dumb choices. Okay. Just want to throw that in. People get kind of weird on God. I don't know. 
He gets blamed for everything. It's kind of weird that this dark little speech made in the Bible, I think it's good for people who think hope is a chirpy, saccharine, pain avoidance kind of form of religious denial for people who lack the courage to look squarely in the eye reality. But this is not Naomi. Nope. Naomi says, women, if you think I'm going to pretend like everything's okay, just so you don't have to be bothered by my pain, you got another thing coming. No, she's real. With Naomi, it's not this, she says, my life stinks. It's, and it's God's fault. <laughs> Are you listening, God? Are you going to comment, God? She's really being honest. And again, the Bible text doesn't comment on Naomi's speech. It doesn't say it's good. It doesn't say it's bad. It's just human. It's just real. That's the only place hope can start. Naomi has this going for her. She's at least honest with God. She believes her God would prefer authentic complaint to fake optimism. And maybe today your hope adjustment starts right there, just naming reality. You know, like today, Lord, my life is bitter. I have a dream that died. You know, I've lost what I treasured most, a person, a spouse, a child, a friend, a job, a career, a destiny, my health. My suffering feels unbearable to me. See, hope has to start right where you are, not where you think you should be, not where you wish you were, but right where you are. <coughs> it's okay to tell God, my situation really stinks, God. It really sucks. Ah, but I got hope because Jesus rose from the dead, because he died for me, because he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I still have hope for some kind of a comeback. Somehow, some way, I don't know how, when, or how he will make a way through this or out of this. I have hope that it won't stay this way forever. And she's got that hope. One more observation about Naomi, and it's true of us often when life disappoints us. She doesn't see her life very clearly because she's focused only on her and her pain. And so she speaks to this woman in her old hometown, and she says, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord brought misfortune on me. I left here with a husband and two sons. I came back alone. Well, not exactly, Naomi. And the writer of this scripture points out, this is not quite true. The text goes on to say, so Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite. No, no, Naomi, you're not quite alone. Not totally. Ruth stands here. But Naomi, in her pain and suffering, doesn't seem to notice at all. And typically, a lot of people do this. We all tend to see our life through our own pain. And often, hope begins not necessarily when your pain lets up, but when you see the pain of somebody else. And this thought comes to you, I could help. I could do something. Well, that thought came to a childless widow named Ruth who sees Naomi in her pain, and she thinks, I could do something. I could help her. So God has given you and I more than you know. He's always given us more than we know, and we lose focus in our pain about it. Having lost some of what you hoped for, you might pause for a moment, look next to you, and see if your life is maybe, just maybe, not quite as empty as you thought. You have a friend, you have a church, maybe you have a job, you have a home, you have a car, you have some gifts, you have an education, you have a mind, and above all, you have a Savior. 
I am never alone, never alone. So it's this unnoticed gift, this unacknowledged daughter who begins the rebirth of hope for Naomi. Now we go into chapter 2, and it starts, and Ruth the Moabite. Notice in the first chapter when they're in Moab, Ruth is just Ruth. But now she's an alien, a stranger. She's unwanted. Now she's an outcast. She's not just Ruth. She's Ruth the Moabite. So scandalous. So it's an amazing story. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go out to the fields and pluck leftover grain behind by anybody whose eyes I might find favor with. She's just hopeful something good might happen. I used to like Oral Roberts' song when he had a TV show, and they would sing something good is going to happen. Well, that's exactly in this bad situation what's going to happen, something good, but it looks horrible. So here's a striking development to go alongside this institutionalized poor of Israel to try to avoid starving by gleaning leftover grain. In other words, their welfare program was the poor had to go out in the field and the owners had to leave the corners unharvested so that the poor could take up some scraps and have food to eat. That was the welfare for the, pro, for the poor. And Ruth, the Moabite, didn't have to do this. She could go home to Moab. She could find a husband. And not just that, she's a foreigner. She's a Gentile. She's likely to be shunned or abused or worse. In fact, later on in the book, it says the men in the fields who are gleaning have to be warned by the owner not to touch her, which is often quite a dangerous world for a woman. Yet, oh, Ruth, she's willing to take the leap of faith and do it. She's not just willing to do it, but it's her idea. She initiates the plan. She actually asks Naomi's permission so she won't be offended uh, by revealing to the public their poverty as she goes out with the other poor to get some grain. And not just that, she has somehow reason to hope that somebody out there in that field, just maybe somebody, is going to look with favor on a Moabite woman. Well, let me take a moment right now in this place, in the middle of this story, to look at the emotion of hope, the experience of hope, so that you can learn how to adjust hope. Everybody has to. So it's important to know the difference as you try to grow hope as a follower of Jesus between a physical feeling and an emotion. Physical sensations have causes. If somebody asked me, Rick, why are you itchy? I'd have to give them a cause. Might be because I wore a wool shirt or I got a rash or I got poison oak. See, I never criticize you for itching. You have an itch. Emotions are different. Emotions have reasons. I'll make this up. Let's say I'm driving, and a woman behind me keeps honking the corn. And my wife says, why are you so angry at that woman? Well, I'll tell you why, Cindy, because she keeps honking that stinking horn. It's ticking me off. So I give that woman an extended version of my dirtiest look. Then she pulls up alongside my car and gestures that my left rear tire is wobbling and about to come off. Oh, that's why she's been honking. She wasn't being rude. She was being kind. And now I'm not angry anymore. I'm grateful she was trying to help me. She was trying to save my life. I'm grateful she doesn't go to our church. 
My anger was based on a false belief. So it was actually wrong. And it's important to understand about emotional growth. Your therapist may have been saying to you for years, an emotion can't be right or wrong, it's just a feeling. And hearing me say a feeling can be wrong might make you mad. Well, I'll tell you, your therapist was wrong, and you should feel grateful. See, hope, if it's going to be the real thing, needs a reason. So Peter writes this, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. That's in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 5. Remember, hope requires wanting and believing. Now, if I want something really, really bad, but I believe I'll never get it, then I experience despair. High want, no belief equals despair. Then my life becomes bitter. Then I am Mara, bitter. One way to deal with it is because none of us can survive indefinitely on despair is to try and get myself to not want it so much, kind of ratchet down my want. So I tell myself I can live without it. So low want plus no belief is now resignation. Resignation is often the way to handle a lot of small hopes. I'll never be Oprah. I'll never bench press 400 pounds. I will never play the keyboards for you too, right? I'll never be an astronaut. Not now, Ricky G. I just resign myself to that. However, however, each of us has what might be called a master desire, an essential passion. Your essential passion is what you desire above all else, and that desire outranks all of your other wants. An essential passion is what can integrate and unify a human life. It's the foundation on which your life stands. So you better choose your essential passion wisely. Well, Ruth chose hers. She said, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. So it's love God and love people that became her essential passion of Ruth's life. Now, children are born with what we call pre-reflective optimism. They have a built-in bias that they're going to get everything they want and everything they pursue. <laughs> yeah. But sooner or later, that kind of reflective optimism in a child hits the wall and they have to adjust to reality. So you can resign yourself to any finite outcome. You can downgrade your desires for anything else. I'll never own that, drive that, work there, marry her, look like him. But you must have an essential passion that's worthy of your life and that is certain for your destiny, and that is God. It's the testimony of the writers of Scripture, only God. See, an author by the name of Robert Roberts notes that Paul never said, may the God of resignation fill you with tolerance for your poor destiny. He didn't say that. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace so that you overflow with hope. That means in the worst day of your life, some of you are in a pit this morning, a dark place, and it looks hopeless. But if you're a follower of Jesus, there has to be that hope, that, that ultimate eternal passion in you, the essential passion that if God's alive, if God loves me, if God created me, if he saved me, he said he'd never leave me or forsake me. Somehow, some way, though I can't 
fathom how it'll happen. He will bring me out of this. He will get me through this in my darkest hour. She's got this hope. I'll find favor somewhere, somehow. So Ruth shows the love of the God of hope as her essential passion. Therefore, she's full of hope in a situation that looks hopeless. See, hoping as opposed to wishing has a strong bias, always towards action. Hope acts. Resignation doesn't. Hope does. So here's Ruth. She's got hope. Well, here I am, an alien. I'm an outcast. I'm a minority. I'm a Moabite. But I got hope. I'm going to get out in that field. Somebody's going to like me. Somebody's going to drop something for me. I'll find some. She had some hope. She had some, it was a sucky situation, but she had some hope, see? But what I'm showing you, she took action. You can't just sit there and suck your thumb. There is something you can do. It may be small. Do it. Take whatever step you can in the midst of that discouragement or bad situation. Take the steps you can. Ask God to show you. Amazing, small steps can lead to a great future. Take it. So she steps out into a field and has no idea this action is going to put her in the genealogy of Jesus. She doesn't have a clue, but she took a step. Despair won't do it, and resignation won't do it, but hope will do it. Well, why are you going there? Well, I'm still hopeful I'll get employed. I'm still hopeful uh, I'll, I'll get through this illness, this sickness. Now, when she takes action in hope, things start to happen. A man named Boaz sees her out in the field, and he asked a fascinating question. Boaz asked the foreman of all of his ranch, his harvesters, get me her number. <laughs> I mean, we get so religious. He just, obviously, Ruth must have been a good-looking girl, but he notices her out there, and he said, who is that young woman out there? Now, of course, the short and amazing answer was she was nobody's woman. In that ancient world, if you were a woman, you were somebody's woman. Your identity was dependent on your relationship to a man. You were your father's daughter or you were your husband's wife. That's who you were. And interesting for Ruth to cast off everything her culture said a woman was and to risk it all to express her love for another woman, her mother-in-law, was a courageous, subversive act. Now, Boaz is not irritated by her dedication to Naomi. He's actually her kinsman redeemer. He's not threatened by it. To the contrary, he marvels and admires Ruth's devotion to Naomi. So he watches out for her in a very tender way, makes sure the boys leave, leave hands full on purpose for Ruth. This is favor, following action in a hope-filled girl. So in a wonderful detail of the story, when Boaz apparently is slow in the romance department, Ruth actually proposes to Boaz. Now, he knows, since Boaz is a relative of Naomi, she knows that if she marries Boaz in that culture, Boaz will take care of Naomi as well. She's still thinking about Naomi. It's an amazing, generous gesture on her part, and Boaz marvels at Ruth's heart. He says, this kindness, that is her desire to get married to Boaz, is greater than before. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. I wonder, is Boaz saying that a relatively mature man such as he is can't be dashing and debonair? 
Apparently so. No hope for that. But mostly it was extreme modesty. Just considered polite in the ancient world. He says, oh, you could have more handsome men than me. That's a polite thing for the guy to say. And he would expect the woman to say, no, 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 you're really good looking. Some of you women know you've had to do that. Okay. Ruth and Boaz end up getting married. And by the way, they have a son. The women of Bethlehem get together and they are screaming and praising God. The first chapters, they praise God. Now they're all excited again. And they bless Naomi and they say to her, for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Are you kidding me? One woman and a daughter-in-law at that is worth more than seven sons. That's the kind of story that make you think about the worth of a woman all over again. And all the girls said, amen. Naomi says, the Lord has not stopped showing his kindness. I thought he had. I was bitter, but I was wrong. And so are you if you're thinking God's brought this misfortune on your life. She's not Mara anymore. She's Naomi, pleasant. She's herself again. And she holds that little baby in her arms, not just a baby, that's eight pounds of hope. Oh, by the way, the baby's name from Ruth the Moabite is Obed. And he grows up, he has a baby boy named Jesse. And Jesse grows up and he has a boy named David. And David would grow up and become king even though David was one-eighth Moabite. I love, I love these stories because when I went to church, nobody ever talked about it. Yeah, then one day, then one day there was a son of David named Jesus and Ruth is in his genealogy in the book of Matthew, which means there's a little Moabite in Jesus. <laughs> That's for our racist people out there which means now there's hope for anybody, even Moabites today. I, I invite you to do a little hope adjustment, whether it's a hurt, a loss, a disappointment, or gut-wrenching grief in your life. Bring it to God, just like Ruth. He'll give you wisdom to know what the right course of action might be, but make really clear your essential passion and not just the things you hope for, but the one you hope in. Do, do all of your human hope adjustments in light of that one unchanging hope. A lot of my hopes didn't come true. A lot of them did. But my ultimate hope in Jesus, the resurrection, eternal life, that's never been in jeopardy. Never. My ultimate hope is if I die, I shall live again. Whatever happens, he's for me on the worst day of your life. Even if the mess you're in, I'm speaking to somebody in here, even if the mess you are in now, you caused it, he will answer you. He will help you. You call unto him in the day of trouble, and he will deliver. Just like Ruth the Moabite, who has no racial contact with the God of Israel at all, and God says, that'll do, sweetheart. You come on in. What, what brought her in? Her faith, her faith in God, our faith in Jesus brings all of us in. And then for today, ask this question like Ruth, who might I bring hope to? You can be a hope bringer. When Ruth served Naomi, she wasn't just bringing her grain. She wasn't just bringing her food. That girl was bringing Naomi hope. What Ruth did is brought hope in the darkness for thousands of years. 
I close with this. I was reading a book recently about that year when England and Winston Churchill were standing alone against Hitler in Nazi Germany. And at one point, Franklin Roosevelt sent to England from the United States his closest personal confidant, a frail, small, little advisor named Harry Hopkins. And Harry was in really bad health. He had cancer. He would eventually die from it. Well, by this time, all of Europe had fallen to Hitler. Austria, Poland, Belgium, Holland, Norway, and France. And Churchill gave this gift of defiant hope to the English people that Hitler could be defeated. That even if he was not, it would be better for the English, as Churchill put it, to choke on their own blood than to surrender to this evil tyrant. But it was clear England alone could not prevail against Hitler. They're going to need the help of the United States. However, the U.S. public was in the grip of a strong isolationist movement called America First. So Churchill turned all of his considerable powers of persuasion and charm on Harry Hopkins to get help from Franklin Roosevelt and the United States. At the end of Hopkins' visit, they, they have this great banquet in Glasgow, Scotland. And at the end of that banquet, Hopkins said to Churchill, I suppose you would like to know what I shall tell the president when I return. I mean, that was an understatement. The fate of the civilized world was in the balance. Churchill and everybody in the room held their breath. What's he going to say? Would the U.S. walk with England on a path that would mean blood and tears and sacrifice and death together? Or would it withdraw while the world fell under the shadow of genocide, barbarianism, and evil beyond description? Would there be any hope? Hopkins said something like this. Well, you probably want to know what I will say to the president. Well, I'm going to quote to him one verse from the book of books in the truth of which my own Scottish mother was raised. And then his voice dropped to nearly a whisper, and he quoted, Whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God shall be my God. Churchill, this great defiant line of England, broke down and wept like a baby. And one of the attendants wrote, we all knew what it meant. It was a rope thrown to a drowning man. There is hope that the U.S. will help us. Whether you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Thy God will be my God. And that's the story. It's amazing that God told the very first priest, Aaron, this was the blessing to bless the people of God. Tell them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. That's in number six. We quote it at the end of every service. There's no beauty in all the world like the beauty of a shining face. And that's what a grandparent usually does when they hold that little grandbaby for the first time. There's not enough words to express what's in their heart, so their face kind of takes over and they shine. And that's what Naomi's old, old wrinkled face did when she held that little child and that's what God wants to do over all of you right now. That's the love he wants to give you. That's the foundation of hope. That alone is worthy of your being. Essential passion, the resurrection of Jesus, the fact of God's love, that he knows where you are, who you are, and no matter what mess you're in, he will come to you. He came to a, a cast out Moabite woman and then a hopeless old widow named Naomi. And she brought hope to Naomi. 
And God honored her hope as Ruth to put her in the genealogy of Jesus and change the future for all of them. It's not too bad right now. You're not in too deep. You, are not, you don't have to be shamed and shameful because it's something you've brought on yourself. God is merciful. God will forgive and God will restore. The key is call on him, just like Ruth did. You call on him. You don't blame God. You call on him. I don't know much about this situation. I don't know if this will ever happen, but I know you, oh God. I know you care for me. I know you watch over me. I know you will never leave me. And though I'm in trouble, I call on your name. You promise you will deliver. So don't feel hopeless. Feel hopeful. And regardless of your situation, God will respond. Thanks again for joining us. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to subscribe and share it with a friend. You can hear more messages by visiting summitsa.com.